We are uh, in 1 Thessalonians, and we'll be looking again at chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So if you haven't already turned there, I would invite you to do that. If you uh, need a Bible, there's likely a blue one located underneath the seat around you. In those Bibles, you could turn to page 986, and that will bring you to our text. Today will be my final message on 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. Y'all doing okay? All right. That sounded convincing, for sure. Uh, All right, beloved. Let's take a look at this precious Word of God together. I'm going to go ahead and read the first 12 verses, or the 12 verses of chapter 2 that we've been looking at, and then we'll dive on in. Pick up where we left off. This is part five. Part five. So there's some other stuff, a lot of other stuff that has been said about this section. You'd need to go back and, and catch that in some previous messages, which you can do online if you, if you weren't here for that, and I would encourage you to do that. Beginning in verse one, for you yourselves know, brothers, it's the Apostle Paul writing to the Christians in Thessalonica or the Thessalonian Christians. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man but to please God, to test our hearts. For he never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So... Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So, we have been working, uh, slowly working, uh, our way through what could rightly be described here as Paul's defense of his gospel ministry that occurred among the Thessalonians. And Paul was forced to go on the defensive because there were opponents of the gospel, uh, primarily unbelieving Jews, those who rejected the gospel, uh, did not believe that Jesus was the Christ who were going around slandering the ministry and character of Paul and his co-workers in hopes that they would undermine the faith of those who had believed the gospel they had heard 
from Paul and his team, and also maybe discourage those who hadn't yet believed uh, from ever doing so. And one thing that emerges from this section as Paul provides for us here certain details concerning his gospel ministry as he defends it is a model for gospel ministry or a picture of what exemplary gospel ministry looks like. And from that picture or that model, I have drawn out eight eight lessons for us. You could certainly draw more, but I've drawn out eight. And they're lessons for us because as fellow followers of Jesus Christ, we too have been called to gospel ministry or called to advance the gospel or the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by making and multiplying disciples of Christ. So, in summary, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12 instructs us as to what exemplary gospel ministry looks like. And we finished last time looking at Lesson 7, which I took from verses 5 through 9. As a reminder, Lesson 7 is that exemplary gospel ministry is not some type of selfish or self-serving endeavor, but rather it is a work of biblical love, that love being a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of others or the one loved. And what greater good could there be for human beings than them trusting and obeying our Lord Jesus Christ. Could there be a greater good? There is no greater good than that. That is the good exemplary gospel ministry is committed to and that we should be willing to make personal sacrifices for, for that endeavor. Now, Before I move on to verses 10 through 12, which is the last piece of this section, and our eighth and final lesson, I need to quickly cover verse 9 because I didn't do that last time. I ran out of time. Verse 9 further affirms of that section 5 through 9 where I drew out lesson 7. Verse 9 further affirms the fact that exemplary gospel ministry is a work of biblical love. 1 Thessalonians 2.9, reminding you of what Paul says there. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Okay? Just a quick note. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, he's talking to believers. They continue to proclaim to them the gospel of God. The gospel of God has many components And is very deep. The well is very deep. So they continue to instruct them in this gospel. The gospel is not just Jesus died for you, believe, and you'll be saved. That is the gospel, certainly part of the gospel, but there's so much more. And so what Paul is saying here is to these believers, you became believers, and we continued. We continued working night and day, so we may not be a burden to you, while we 
preached and proclaimed the gospel to you, instructed you in sanctification and all these the rich truths of their salvation, instructed you in your hope and your heavenly uh, future and in matters of the kingdom of God that are to come and all of these things. Uh, that's what Paul is explaining there. So the gospel is, is not a, a one-sentence thing, uh, just a quick little phrase or tagline. The gospel is full and rich, and we continue to be instructed as believers in the gospel of God. So, Paul and his team, according to this verse, worked in order not to be a burdened burden to the Thessalonian Christians. So, what kind of burden might that be? Well, it was the burden of them, the Thessalonians, having to provide materially or financially for Paul and his team who were temporarily staying in Thessalonica. Okay, so Paul and his co-workers did not have residence in Thessalonica. They did not live there. They were traveling, and as they traveled, they were preaching the gospel, proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ, and looking to start churches through the gathering of believers together into local bodies and fellowships, making the Lord known. And so in the process of doing that, they would need some type of support just to meet their daily needs and um, not having a home or in the place where they could go to or even having a job in the area. But Paul says here that they worked night and day. They worked night and day. So we know that Paul was a tent maker, so we assume that Paul worked in his tent making trade. And we can assume that his co-workers helped him or did some type of work, um, working, and at the same time, preaching the gospel. So they're working night and day and preaching the gospel, but they're doing that for a reason, that they may not have to ask the Thessalonians there for support. Now, material support in return, as one writer says, material support in return for, for spiritual or philosophical instruction was very common Uh, both in the church and in the world, or in the Hellenistic world in general. In other words, it was was not something that was considered improper. There were traveling, itinerant teachers or speakers who would come into a community or a town, and they would give their wisdom or their uh, message, and it was expected that they would be supported by the local residents that were there, and they would even ask for that support, and there was nothing um, out of ordinary about that. But Paul determined not to do that in this particular case, not to do that. Instead, he, he really burdened himself and his team because while he's trying to give himself fully to the preaching of the gospel and instructing the Thessalonians in the gospel and, and training them and educating them and helping them start off in this new life, he has determined also to add to that work, working night and day so that he could support himself and his team. One writer says, this costly personal concern of the missionaries not to be a financial burden on their converts proved that there was no greed behind their preaching. And he mentions that in verse 5, that in their bringing the word, there was no pretext for greed. It wasn't a, a cover 
to try to, to gain something for themselves. So that certainly proves it, and it proves, in addition, that, it was an, that he had an unselfish concern for this flock. The one writer says, if they had been typical traveling philosophers, the Thessalonian believers would not have been spared because it was standard practice of the philosophers to demand pay for their instruction. Interesting, we learn from Philippians 4.16, from that letter that Paul wrote to that church and that city that he was in and, and preached the gospel to, that when Paul and his team were in Thessalonica, the church in Philippi did what they could to help Paul financially. Paul mentions that they sent them help or gifts of some sort, material support, financial support, that that church supported Paul when he was in Thessalonica. So he's, gaining, he's getting support there from the church in Philippi, and then he's also working night and day while he's there in Thessalonica, and uh, so basically this, this man and his team were, you know, it's a 24-7 kind of operation. But he did that, he made that sacrifice so that he wouldn't be a burden to the Thessalonians. One writer says, although we know that some gifts were sent to him from the Philippian church, even while he was in Thessalonica, these were evidently inadequate for his needs. So they sent them him support and his team, but it, it must not have been enough. And it may have been because, as we know, the Macedonian churches, or the churches in this area, geographically known as Macedonia, Paul tells us they suffered from extreme poverty in 2 Corinthians 8.2. In other words, these were poor people. They didn't have a lot. So the Philippians did what they could, uh, thankful for Paul and his ministry and his word to them and bringing them the gospel and wanting to partner in making the gospel known through Paul and his team. They did what they could. But it probably wasn't enough. But instead of Paul then turning to the Thessalonians and say, look, we just need some more support. We need food, these kind of items. Uh, he went ahead and employed himself through his tent-making skills and his team so to provide for themselves at this, at this stage. So in these circumstances, Paul could have made himself a burden to the Thessalonian Christians by asking them for money, but he, he simply determined not to do so. And why wouldn't he do that? Out of love, beloved, because it was, he, had a, he was willing to make sacrifices uh, for this church to seek their greatest good. And he felt that it would be too much to ask them for support. In the second letter, that, or in Second Thessalonians' letter, he writes also to the church uh, there in Thessalonica. He says this in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He again reminds them, with toil and labor we worked night and day. So in addition to making the gospel known to you, we were also working our trade. We worked night and day. Why? Because we're workaholics? No. We, they, they much rather would have probably wanted to have rested a little bit from all the other gospel work they were doing. But we worked night and day. That's why, that's why that word toil and labor. This is hard, hard effort they're putting forth. Why? That we might not be a burden to any of you. Look what he says in verse 9. It was not because we did not have that right, in other words, to ask for help, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. And I would say the example would, at minimum, be an example of love, of self-sacrifice, of willing to give up uh, even one's rights, even though Paul and his team had the right 
to ask for help. It was the ordinary course of things. That is what people did. And certainly we know in the Scriptures, Paul goes on to say that those who preach the gospel and make that their full-time effort should be supported by that very gospel. But Paul chose not to exercise that right and instead add more to his load for the sake of those poor believers who probably, he looked around and thought, there's just no way it would be too much of a burden to him. And also, it demonstrated love, which is what gospel ministry is supposed to be about, true biblical love. One writer says, since Paul clearly stayed in Thessalonica beyond the three Sabbaths, which he first taught at the synagogue, he had time to set up a tent-making business, which he did, working night and day with his hands to support himself and those with him. Paul did not want to be a burden to any of the Thessalonians because he knew that they lacked material resources. So, again, that whole section to me, 5 through 9, just demonstrates the lesson um, that I've already covered with you, Lesson 7, that biblical ministry, gospel ministry, exemplary gospel ministry is to be rooted in biblical love, characterized by biblical love, driven by that. And you see that in verses 5 through 9. As Paul gives these details in defense of the slanderous attacks being made against him, that you know he was just in it for himself, He's just like, you know, he's just there to take and, and get what he can. This is all a hoax. And so Paul's trying to demonstrate, and, and I think clearly demonstrating, you know this is not a hoax. Look, we even, we even had a right to, to ask for support. We didn't even do that. We didn't want to be a burden to you. Rather, we worked night and day while all the while we're continuing to preach the gospel to you and to make it known. Out of love. Out of love. That brings us to Lesson 8. Lesson 8. This is the final one that I'll take from this section. And it's this. Exemplary gospel ministry looks to make those who believe in Christ faithful followers of Christ. Its aim is to see Christians live lives worthy of God, to live out the gospel that they have believed. So exemplary gospel ministry is not, a, is not just about coming in and, and getting a bunch of people uh, to, to make some profession of faith or to say, uh, yeah, we believe in Jesus. That's not exemplary gospel ministry. Exemplary gospel ministry starts with presenting the person's need for the Savior and presenting the Savior and calling people to repent and believe. Yes, of course. But once they have believed or put their faith and trust in this Jesus, it's not over. It's just begun. It's just the beginning of a new life in Christ. And exemplary gospel ministry then looks to take that new believer further along in their walk with the Lord, helping them grow up in maturity, helping them be conformed to the image of Christ, helping them understand and live out what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, helping them realize all the implications of the gospel and the commands of it concerning one's life. So we see that here in verses 10 through 12. Beginning in verse 10, Paul says this, you are witnesses. So again, you know, you remember these things. So again, this is, 
you think about these itinerant preachers, they would, you know, and there were certainly a lot of phonies or those who were using it for gain or to take advantage of the people who would come through these towns. And so, yeah, they are, they are blow and go. You know, they come in, they collect, they get, they spout off their wisdom, and they're out of there. They don't they have no interest in the future of these people. They only have interest in their own future. And so Paul here makes it clear that isn't the case. We care about you, and we care about your lives and your future lives. We are investing in you. We love you. And so he says, you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. A lot of good stuff there, beloved. A lot of good stuff. So in verse 10, just to begin with, Paul uses three adverbs, holy, righteous, and blameless, as it's translated in the ESV, to describe the conduct of or behavior of himself and his co-workers during their stay with those in Thessalonica who believed and trusted in Christ. So holy, the way I would understand it here, is conduct that is devout or pious or pleasing to God. Conduct that is pleasing to God. Righteous conduct, conduct that comes up to the standard of what is right or just. Conduct that measures up to what God expects and requires. Righteous conduct. Blameless. He says their conduct was blameless. That's conduct that is irreproachable as a whole. Uh, Conduct that is, as one commentator says it, able to stand their critics' scrutiny because it was right. Blameless. One One uh, author puts it this way, the lives of the messengers of this gospel, and this should be true of us as well, beloved, as we bring the gospel into people's lives, as we make Jesus known. He says this, the lives of the messengers had demonstrated that they not only believed the gospel, but also behaved it, behaved it. It impacted their life. It worked through them. The gospel was all the truths and the implications and the realities of the gospel were working out through them. It wasn't just something that they believed once and then stuck on a shelf. It ruled over their lives, this gospel. If I were to paraphrase this section and adding my own kind of thoughts here, kind of what the sense is, it would go something like this. Paul's saying, listen. You and God are witnesses of how we lived among you. Our behavior showed that we were devoted to pleasing God in all things, determined to do what our Lord would require us to do. We lived virtuous lives before your eyes. We were guiltless in our conduct, as you know. We lived out the gospel before you. We showed you what it looks like to be a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then Paul elaborates, further describes what he just said in 10, in verses 11 and 12, beginning in 11. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So here, again, Paul uses a metaphor, a picture, if you will, as he did in a little bit earlier in verse 5. But he says, uh, like a father with his children. Actually, verse 7, and then in, verse, in that verse, and in verse 7, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So on one hand, he says, we were like a nursing mother taking care of our own children in verse 7. Now he uses the other side of that uh, picture, and he says, we were like a father with you, with his children. That's how we were. And again, father here, it's assumed an appropriate father, a good father, not a bad father or an absent father or one who doesn't uh, take his responsibilities seriously. So that's assumed. So one writer says, looking in verse 7, where we see the metaphor of the mother being used and the, and the sacrificial care and loving care of her own children in the giving of herself, a nursing mother specifically, it says, the giving of herself to, to nurture this child and making the sacrifices that requires. In verse 7, the picture was that of a tender nursing mother unselfishly pouring out her loving care upon her babes. Here, though, as we look at this section, the picture is that of an earnest father training and instructing his children. Training and instructing his children. Now, I don't know. I mean, our society is so strange and uh, so removed in some cases from biblical norms. But in the culture at the time, the figure of a father would even be used by Jewish teachers to denote the relationship to their pupils. It was understood that that idea, in other words, the teacher, the instructor, the one that would train these students would be considered a father of sorts because that is what fathers did because that was their responsibility in the family. One writer says the authority of the father in the family was supreme in Greco-Roman society. He was responsible for arranging for the training of his children. He, or those he assigned the task of rearing the children, would educate and or discipline as needed. In other words, that was his role, to instruct, to educate. It doesn't, that doesn't mean that the mother had no part in that role, but the primary responsibility was set at the feet of the father, of the father. And, you know, we have all kinds of different homes, different situations nowadays, and that may not have been true in your home or is not true now, but um, as the head of the home, that was his responsibility. The mother was the, the caretaker, the lover, the nurturer. Of course she would, I would say, support this training and reinforce it that the father was to give, but the, the father was the one his care looked like this. I'm going to educate, train, instruct you. 
young girl, young man, young boy, that was, that was on him. And so Paul uses that metaphor. Maybe it's lost on some people nowadays because fathers sadly sometimes abdicate their role and say, you know, whatever, you do it, you take care of it. But the father is the one primarily to be driving that education, instruction. And, and of course, when the father doesn't do it or he's not around or he refuses, then someone's got to do it and mom will pick up, uh, hopefully pick up the, the responsibility and take care of it. But in a, in a home that's operating as it should, the father, this would be the father's role. And so you see here these, these participles in verse 12, exhorted, encouraged, charged, they all describe then the manner in which a father would deal with his children. And it would have been, they understood it in that society, and hopefully we can understand that today, even if we didn't maybe have that experience growing up or we don't see it exampled for us as much now, unfortunately. But he said uh, he would exhort them. So listen, like like a father with his children, I exhorted each one. We exhorted we, Paul and his team, exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. So exhorted, what's that? Well, the idea is that they strongly appealed to them to adopt a suitable course of action. Instructed them how to live in light of the gospel, in light of their new being made a new creation in Christ. They needed instruction. These were pagans. Living pagan lives, living, you know, under the obedience of and mastery of false gods. Now they have been brought to the one and true living God, and he has instructions for them on how they are to live. And so they exhorted them as a father would who cares about his kids, doesn't want to see them go into the ditch, but wants to see them take the good course, the right course. And so... That is what they did. They, they instructed them how to live. They, they told them how to live in light of the word of God and the gospel. But the other thing they did is encourage them. They encouraged them. So they've instructed them how to live. Now they encourage them. That, that's the idea that they inspired them to continue the desired course of action. So here's the, here's the course of action you, you need to take, uh, young Christian, in the faith, but now I'm going to encourage you to take that course of action. Uh, one writer points out, and encourage in the sense of, uh, think of a comfort and consolation. And he says, this is so critical in assisting towards spiritual growth because of the many obstacles and failures that Christians can experience. We need encouragement. And he says, so like a father, we not only, we not only uh, appealed to you to adopt a, a suitable or appropriate uh, course of action, but then we went on to encourage you to continue that desired course of action. We came alongside you. We gave you comfort and consolation because life is difficult. Life is hard. And you can imagine for this new way, how easy for it is to, for us to adopt an, a, a new habit or a new way of living. It's complicated. It's, it can be problematic. We're used to, so you've got to imagine, these are adults. So unlike, unlike, and this would be true for anyone, but certainly adult or not, we all need to be encouraged and instructed. But just think about this. They've, they've had their way for a while in their pagan lifestyle. 
And so, like a father, so, you know, taking the time, we got to instruct you, we gotta, we're going to have to encourage you, and we did that. We did that. We continued to, to comfort you in these things. And then finally, charged. Charged, like a father, we charged or urged, is another way to translate that. They charged or urged them to walk in a manner worthy of God. You know what that is? They insisted that they live lives suitable or fitting or appropriate to the God that they had come to know as their Savior. That's what it looks like, exemplary gospel ministry. So as you see these things that they did, we too are to do these things. Exhort, encourage, and insist or urge. So this, this is, these are the instructions on how you are to live in light of the gospel, how how you will live in a way that God would have you to live. We want to, uh, we want to continue to, to inspire you to those things and come alongside you and encourage you to do those things, and we will continue to insist or urge you and charge you to do those very things. It's like, you know, with your kids, you're just, it's the same type of thing where you're, this is how you do it. All right, come on, Johnny. Good job, good job, Johnny. And then when Johnny doesn't do it, you tell him again, you need to do this. This is how you are to live. How many times do I have to tell you? Just one more time, just one more time. You've got to continue to enforce uh, what the Lord would have for us through instruction and through urging and insisting. Now, that phrase, worthy of God, I like that phrase. You should make a note of it. To live worthy of God, lives worthy of God, or in a manner worthy of God. That's the focal point. That's what this is about. Again, this isn't about living for Paul or living for his coworkers. This is the focal point for Paul and his team and for us as well should be to encourage, exhort, and insist that believers live for God. He is the one who determines, God is, is the one who determines what is appropriate and what is not. It means that we are live in a manner consistent with the commands and character of God. That was the very behavior Paul and his team sought to model and did model for the young Thessalonian believers, as we see there in verse 10. I mean, it would be hard to encourage someone to continue in this uh, particular behavior or conduct when you yourself are not doing that particular behavior or conduct. We all know that that doesn't work. That's like, you know, dad telling you, don't smoke, kid, <clears throat> you know? And it doesn't, you know, while he p- picks up and smokes another one, it, it doesn't have the impact. How are you going to be an encouragement to him? You, you yourself have to be behaving in that way, conducting yourself in that way. And in fact, in doing so, you would be an encouragement. And in fact, you would be giving instruction. And in fact, as you continue to do that, insisting that this is how you ought to live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So for us too, we also have to be living appropriately in a way that is worthy of God. If we have any hope of instructing and encouraging and insisting that other brothers and sisters in Christ would live that way as well. Something to consider. One writer says, acceptance of the gospel message carries with it 
the obligation to live a life consistent with that message. Paul was never content merely to gain large numbers of converts without seeking to induce them to walk worthily of the Lord they had professed. For a true believer, the character of his daily life can never remain a matter of indifference. You know, if someone were to say they believe the gospel and then in some way communicate or believe that then it doesn't matter how they live, would at minimum mean that they are confused. Or it could be that they got the wrong gospel to begin with. Because that's not the gospel. The gospel calls people to a Lord who calls them to a new life and empowers them for that very purpose. That's the gospel. Paul lived it out. Paul instructed in it. Paul was an example of it in his team. And that was his aim in his exemplary gospel ministry, to help people grow and become faithful followers of Christ. Notice he closes out, he doesn't, in verse 12, he says, walk in a manner worthy of God. And then he adds one more statement. Who calls you into his own kingdom and glory? It is the kingdom and glory here that he's talking about that will be manifested in all of its fullness when Christ comes again. One writer says, God's calling to believers looks forward to their intimate participation in the eschatological kingdom, that kingdom in the end that will come, awaiting Christ's return. Another writer says, the continuing summons of God to the future kingdom and glory is an ever-renewed inducement to holy living. Think about it with me for a second. This is how Paul closes out the section, right? He's talking about, listen, you know, you know how we lived and you know like a father is with the children. We were an example for you and we, in, we exhorted you and we encouraged you and we charged you. We charged you to live because it's about God to live worthy lives of him. Lives that he finds that are suitable in light of who he is and what, he, and what he's done for you and saving you. Remember, it's this one who's calling you into his kingdom and glory. And what type of kingdom will that be? A holy, righteous kingdom. One where obedience is offered up all the time to the Lord. That's the kingdom God has saved you for and is calling you into. Live in light of that. One writer says the present participle who calls, he calls you, looks not to the conversion of the Thessalonians. He's not talking about what occurred in the past but focuses on the ongoing calling that anticipates the future dawning of the age to come. Do you know what God is calling you to? Remember, don't forget. And that is why we keep urging and insisting and charging and instructing and encouraging you to live lives worthy of God. 
Well, it's a new year. So, uh, Wes mentioned earlier, you know, people make all kinds of commitments. And, and as you know, m- many of them are, you know, short-lived. It's just kind of how we are as human beings. And most of them probably are, are very temporal in nature, meaning that they address things that are going to pass away anyway, you know. I'm going to lose 10 pounds. You're going to lose it all someday. (laughs) Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Uh, You know what I'm saying. I'm going to work better on my... And these these are... Some of these things are... You know, there's nothing wrong with doing that. And, you know, I'm going to focus more on my finances. Fantastic. You'll be filthy rich in the kingdom of God. But, you know, it's good to live wisely here while you're on earth. I'm just saying it's, a lot of it's very temporarily, temporary fix on what's passing away. As we begin the new year, beloved, I, let me just draw us back to these eight lessons real quick. It, it is going to be quick. I'll just take you back through them, and maybe we would focus on these things, not only you know, for the new year, but for the remainder of the days that the Lord allows us to live. I don't know what would be more important than this, of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I said before, why do you think he left the church here? Why didn't, why didn't when we got saved, did he just, you know, take us to be with him? We're here for a purpose, for a reason. So in the course of our lives and doing all that God has us doing, we are to be about the business of making much of Christ, of advancing the gospel, of seeking to make him known and make disciples of Jesus Christ and multiply them, that being that they too then would make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our work now. That's our primary responsibility. Now, we do that in all... And this is the cool thing. Wherever God has you, he has you there for a reason. He wants you to do it through that outlet. Wherever you're working, wherever you're living, in whatever family has placed you, you're there for a reason. Nothing's by accident. What is the reason? I would say the biggest reason is that's your circle of influence to make the gospel known. That's it. So, here's the lessons we, we drew out of this section that might help us do that better or well as we looked at this exemplary gospel ministry. One, don't let opposition stop you from making much of Jesus Christ to those around you. That was lesson one. Don't let it stop you. Don't let it stop you. Two, find boldness for the task by trusting and resting in God's power and sustaining strength. We're weak. Let's just confess that. But God is strong and all-wise. Look to him. Trust in him. Pray to him. For that purpose, God, help me. Help me to faithfully make you known wherever you'll put me tomorrow or where I will be tomorrow and the next day. So many prayers offered up to God. How often is that one offered up? Three, with all sincerity, 
We are to share the message of Jesus Christ. That's what we should be committed to doing with others and rely solely upon God, solely upon God to supernaturally open their ears and their hearts to the truth. We should not ever use trickery of any sort or some type of manipulation or water the message down to try to think that our doing or, or some method that we might use might get them in with God, that, that that'll help them somehow to believe. They're not going to believe unless God does a work. But he does that work, which is his work alone, he does that work through means. The means being the proclamation of the gospel, the sharing of it with that person. And that's the part you and I are to play. Four, be motivated to make Christ known out of, first and foremost, a love for God. That's, that's the source that should be motivating you, a love for God, a love for him, doing what delights him. And he is delighted. He is delighted in us making much of the Son of God. Five, guard or reinforce both your conviction that the gospel message you share is the absolute truth. Guard it. It's, if you don't have that conviction, you're, you're going to lack uh, a desire to make it known. If you have doubts about it, so you need to guard it. It's constantly under attack. And you need to, you need to reinforce it through study and through the word and through fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Six, remember that the gospel is a stewardship, something belonging to God, but that he has entrusted to us, which means we are to do with it what God desires. We are not free to do with it whatever we want or just let it sit on the couch or up on a shelf. We are to take that gospel into the world to our neighbor, <laughs> to our coworkers, to our family. Seven, be committed to seeking the highest good of others, even as it requires you to make personal sacrifices. And finally, eight, look to make those who believe in Christ faithful followers of Christ. Make it your aim to see Christians live lives worthy of God, to live out the gospel they have believed. And beloved, listen, where would that start? I think it would start first with your blood family with your children, with your spouse, that you'd be looking to do that there. That is, if they are believers. And if they're not believers, you're, you're making the gospel known to them when, and, and, and when it, and you can and when it's appropriate and right and using wisdom in that, you're making it known. But when they become believers, then you are looking to see them become faithful followers of Christ. So your discipleship ministry starts right there. But it doesn't end there. The church is gathered together as a spiritual family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so you're looking to help one another then become that faithful follower of Christ, to see them live lives worthy of God. And, how, and we looked at that. How are you going to do that? Well, you yourself are going to have to pursue lives worthy of God if you're going to instruct in it and encourage others to do it and insist and charge them to do such things. Otherwise, you'll just be seen as a hypocrite. A fitting message, I hope, 
for the new year, beloved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we love you and we thank you for all that we have uh, seen here in your word and have learned. And Father, help us to, again, take it to heart and to apply it uh, to our lives, Father. May the gospel be precious to it. It is precious to you. May it be as precious to us. And may we, we treat it the way you would have us treat it, deal with it the way you would have us deal with it. Father, may we make it our goal in life, our ambition to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in any way that we can do that, wherever we can do that, wherever you have placed us in life. We pray all these things in our Savior's name. Amen.